Um, so huh. if you could have anything implemented into your arm, say a gun, mm-hmm. uh-huh. or a USB drive, a gun, a Bluetooth speaker, mm-hmm. what would you want? I just want uh, a Winter Soldier arm. Is that an option? Just a metal arm. Just a metal, just a cool metal arm. Metal you just arm. Wrecks up like Jax from Mortal Kombat. Bingo. Yeah. I, I want like the Iron Man arm. Oh, the, all all the things. The so I've got thing. I've got propulsion. I've got yeah. Just one arm though, so you're spinning in circles. <laughs> well, I got I, you know what one arm cartwheels. one arm needs remain fleshly. I think for reasons. But okay. anyway, yeah. I would, look, as soon as Arthur asked this, I was like, I've thought about this a lot. I was ready for this. <laughs> My wife has to hear me talk about how I want a bionic eye and a metal arm yeah. all the time. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm ready for our, our post human existence. I'm ready for you. It, ready though. to upgrade? You know what? What does Dalton 2.0 look like? I am more comfortable with upgrading. Uh, Outline Dalton 2.0 for me. It's the metal arm and that eye, baby. Uh, oh, you know what I do need? I just need uh, internet access, uh, like straight to my uh, my cerebellum. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Just uh, that'll be very that way. Helpful. The internet is inside your brain. But the way things you actually want, move, you, you want that to happen. All right, Dustin, you've actually uh, presented some interesting questions here. <laughs> <laughs> but the way things go, it'll just be a dial-up connection. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it'll, it'll be a while before yeah. you get wireless up there. I was picturing uh, a, a real downloading all the new dances into my brain, sort of like uh, I know the Charleston. Uh, it would be, yeah. That's what I would use. See, my I'm just imagining like just the premium Snapchat content yeah. in your head all the time. Yeah, it's just, just it's TikTok just trolls and porn and... and TikTok. Yeah, yeah. it's just I can't. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Dustin's brought a good point. I've I've tried to get off the internet as much as possible lately. This is a, a step backwards. Dalton 2.0 doesn't need that. <laughs> but hello, everybody, and welcome to the internet in which you listen to the Good Trash Undercast. Uh-oh, putting it directly <laughs> into your head. There you go. <laughs> and uh, we are here to do the thing that we do, which is uh, talk about the movies in a film studies kind of way, in a movie that would not find its way into a film studies course. That was a weird way to phrase it, but I, I think you got there. Well, it, was, it took me a second. I, I started something, and then, you know, my grammar you did great, bound but... me up. It happens sometimes. Well, it, was, it was real verbal jujitsu. You, you saved the sentence. Um, I am a... Uh... I am an AI. I'm not a ninja. <laughs> <laughs> I love the VO for STEM in this movie. It, it's some good stuff. So yeah. uh, we are watching the movie Upgrade, directed by Lee Winnell, um, starring not Tom Hardy. And yeah. uh, and not Dane DeHaan. Yeah, right? Oh, my God. That guy looks like Dane DeHaan so much. Yeah. I mean, as much as Logan Marshall Green looks like Tom Hardy, that dude looks like uh, DeHaan a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, do I read a review for it who compared him to a... Do <laughs> Thank you. A knockoff uh, James Dean. Oh, wow. Yeah, I get that vibe, too. Yeah, yeah, I'm for okay. that. Yeah. So uh, we're going to be doing this thing. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am Dalton 1.5, hopefully someday to be 2.0. And I am Stem. That checks out. That's, that's right. We you want to rule the world. We got Stem on the ones and zeros this week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave. I can't do that for you right now. Um. Anyway... Uh, what we do on the show, we do a analysis, not review. That means spoilers. So, uh, this is a new film and it's got spoilies. And, but we're not going to spoil right at first. So if you want to just a taste, you want to check us out, you want to see what's going on, you can listen to the synopsis, you can listen to our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, you can even listen to our expanding the syllabus and they'll all will be spoiler light sections. And then when we get down to business and that business is as always analysis. And when that happens, uh, all spoiler bets are off. So you've been warned. I'm done with my preamble. Arthur. Let's hear that synopsis, please. Gray and Asha Trace are your run-of-the-mill semi-futuristic couple. Gray is a gearhead, a remnant of a fading culture and workforce, and Asha works for an up-and-coming tech company. Computers are the future, after all. One night, the couple are mugged, an event that sees Asha murdered and Gray left as a quadriplegic. As Gray tries to adjust to a new life, he is offered a proposition from one of his automotive clients, the ability to walk. 
Gray is implanted with a technology known as STEM that allows him to move again. But he soon learns that STEM will allow him more than the opportunity to move. It'll give him the ability to seek revenge on the men who killed his wife. Dun, dun, dun. It's one of those movies. Yeah. Um, so Pretty standard good trash fare. It, I, yeah. I think so, yeah. yeah. And a little probably... bit of Death Wish. Yeah. A little bit of Robocop. Yeah. yeah. A little, little bit, bit of, of The Crow. Liam Neeson kills everybody. Whatever yeah. that, you know. Actually, I feel like... A little uh, bit of Venom. As soon as you said Robocop and... Uh, what was the first one you said? Oh, my gosh. Uh, um, die, uh, nope. Death Wish. Yeah. That feels like... Thank you. Uh, that really does kind of feel like the the aesthetic of this film. Yeah. In a big way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It really owes a lot to Verhoeven, as I'm sure we'll get into. I think so. I think so. So, um, let's do the first thing. The first thing is... Thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Dalton... Do you like Upgrade? I do. Uh, I actually caught this in theaters uh, and really enjoyed it uh, when it came out in 2018. Uh, it made, what, 16 mil on a 3 mil budget, so a lot of people uh, didn't see this movie, and a lot of people probably won't. Uh, Still ever. made a profit. <laughs> it, it made some money. Yeah, it's a good you know, good turnaround for Bloomhouse. Uh, that's kind of their business model. They mm-hmm. make cheap movies. They don't have to make a lot. But this is a movie that's probably going to be forgotten uh, before too many years from now. Um, I'm sure you'll have people banging the drum for it uh, in 10 years or so saying, hey, remember this kind of weird movie everybody forgot about? Uh, but again, it's small budget, small return, um, and it's it's a pretty run-of-the-mill uh, sci-fi thriller. Uh, so th- with good reason, it'll probably be forgotten. But that said, I think there is a lot of fun here, and it is something of a shame to me that uh, you know this, this movie kind of came and went quietly, uh, and it just lives on the Internet now. Uh, because of this, this movie is, despite, as I said, it's one of those movies. Yeah, it is, it is a pretty standard revenge thriller. There's a lot more to it than it first meets the eye, I think. And, and in the second viewing for the podcast, it, w- it was fun to go back with all of the, um, you know, the, the plot information that the film gives you throughout and kind of slowly uh, reveals itself to you. It was fun to go in with all that foreknowledge. It does change the film a lot. And I actually think it's a much more interesting film on second watch uh, than on first. Uh, you know, it is not really doing uh, much uh, outside of saying, hey, your phone's not your friend. Maybe rethink your relationship to technology. Uh, and I don't know that it offers more than that, really. But what it has to say about that, it says with a lot of cool shit. <laughs> it's got some truly uh, next-level fight choreography. Uh, it's got some really fun camera work that apparently was done by... Uh, pairing the camera with a phone and Lee, or uh, almost said Lee Winnell, that's the director, uh, Logan Marshall Green's pocket. So that that kind of allowed him hmm. uh, that that kind of weird swoop the camera does yeah. a lot while he's walking. I guess that's how they did it huh. was to allow that camera to automatically kind of pan with him, uh, which I think is uh, really fun. I'd like to learn more about that tech. Uh, but that that alone really does add a lot. Like it's it's these kind of small aesthetic choices uh, where they really flex that three million dollars. I mean, you can see there's moments where you're like, oh, okay. You didn't have enough money to make this scene look like the future. But it, that, that really brings a charm to this film. It, it has a, a really 80s cinema quality to it, and normally I would say that as a negative, but I think here it, it really does kind of remind you that there is there's something to like uh, from the, that decade of cinema. We kind of bag on it a lot. Uh, but there's, there's a lot aesthetically that happened in the 80s uh, as far as using ultra violence to kind of to make action films a little less thrilling and make them a little bit more unsettling again paul verhoeven's uh, being a, a great example of somebody that did that a lot in the 80s uh, and and i think this film carries that torch kind of in a really admirable and interesting way it's it's fun to see lee winnell who's kind of had a weird career as one of the the grandfathers or forefathers of the saw franchise uh and he just kind of disappeared for a little bit 
Um, and, and it's interesting to see, you know, James Wan's had this really great career mm-hmm. uh, being the director on that first one. But watching Lee Winnell's career as the writer of the first saw kind of evolve uh, yeah. and come to, to upgrade it makes it really fun. Again, I, I enjoy it for that aspect, just kind of in that, that career study. Uh, and again, I think all of the action beats here are are so impressive, again, based on just the the limited resources they had to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll leave you all with this. This film was filmed in Australia, which is not surprising. You can hear the accents come out pretty often. But uh, there's a highway chase in this film. And the entire time, I couldn't stop thinking, oh, man, I, shot, I hope they shot that on the Matrix Reloaded Highway. Because uh, that's still there. The Matrix Reloaded Highway is still in Australia. I couldn't find if they shot the the highway chase scene in this movie on that highway. But boy, do I hope they did. <laughs> oh, I want them to have so bad. Um, yeah, this movie's really cool. Uh, it's kind of thin. I think we'll have a lot of fun with it when we get to analysis. All right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you think, Arthur? Do you like Upgrade? I echo Dalton quite a bit. I mean, on paper, it's a very paint-by-numbers uh, revenge thriller, quote-unquote. Um but I think Winnell makes a great economic use of his resources here. I think the production design is, is very stellar. Um, mm. The semi-futuristic world they're able to build, I think he's got a great scope of that. And even though we don't have a lot of people or extras or background you know, characters in, in the city, um, he still does enough there to kind of give us a big picture of what this world is and what it looks yeah. like. Kind of this marriage we've seen some of these self-driving smart cars as well as some older models as well as mm-hmm. the classic models that uh gray works on in, in his shop and um I, I think there's a good economic economic use there i i, I like uh the uh, aaron's like monolith entrance to his uh future uh underground home oh yeah his future house thing is wild that's yeah, really cool uh establishment of that mm-hmm. um and so i really appreciate that i like you said the, the camera i think that that camera work and that fight choreography alone help elevate this to a different plane it's a jackie chan movie by way of david cronenberg yeah I, I, that's I, how the choreography works yeah out. and yeah. I, I read a pitch uh somebody said it's like think the tuxedo but rated r uh in in the performance of logan uh, yeah. marshall green well, there and, you go and i think he's got a great performance the the physicality of that performance you know yeah uh, i think the delivery is very intentionally subdued and kind of Soft and and aloof, but his physicality in doing that because he is, I think, portraying this uh, possession of his body in a way yeah. that makes very incredible sense. Being very rigid and being very stiff and being kind of his facial expressions as he's in shock yeah. at what is happening in yeah. front of him is really cool. I think it asks a lot of mime work uh, of Logan Marshall Green. Yeah. yeah, that performance is really. You know, we're going to talk about call him Bobo Tom Hardy, knock off Tom Hardy a lot on this episode. But you're absolutely right, Arthur. Like that's. That's a a big ask for him, that performance. And I think you're right. right. He kills it. Yeah, I think he does a great job. And, and like you said, the fight choreography is a lot of fun. Uh, the the gore that we do get is uh, impressive, especially when he slices the guy's jaw in half. Uh, is a really effective uh, piece of work. Ooh. It's gross. It's so gross. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm thankful they didn't show us uh, the, the thin slicing of the man's face that happens off screen, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty wild. Um, I like the muted colors. I like that, that visual aesthetic. And I also appreciate the score quite a bit. I think it's got a good kind of... 80s synth score uh, at work and mm-hmm. i think it it pairs well with the the film um so i think it's doing enough stylistically to kind of help elevate it. and it also feels um like you can you can see the universal influence the classic universal horror influence especially in the character of aaron um, who has that very dr frankenstein look but there's also this kind of operatic moments that feel out of out of that universal um mm. base and, and so i i think that's probably a lot of why 
Winnell is pegged as as the director for the upcoming Invisible Man remake. Sure. Um, which is in that same camp. So yeah, I, I like this movie quite a bit. I think it's a lot of fun. I, I think it's a great watch and rewatch is just as easy as the first time. So I, I appreciate it a lot. Well, Dustin, what did you think? I'm sure you enjoyed that uh, our our heavy in this film, Fisk, looked like uh, almost exactly like John Waters. Yes. Uh, I'm sure that did a lot for you. Uh, what else did you like about this movie? Um, yeah, John Waters with a gun coming out of his hand. Um, that seems Kicks so much ass. Entirely appropriate. Uh, yeah, no, I really did enjoy it. I, I think it is, as you say, and I think it's fair as a you know general criticism. It is very stock. It is it is a it is a conventional movie in every sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, I as you the the production design, I love that the idea of near future in which the past yeah. is still hanging around because yeah. a lot of times you see the future. And I, I'm thinking like a movie like her, where it is a near future, but yet like all the old stuff is gone. gone. This nails kind of the same thing that Looper does, where it really nails 20, 30, 40 years in the future. Yeah. And then kind of shows the remnants of a retrofitted future. I think it's really smart to allow for both types of cars. I think that's yeah. Yes. Like, like bo- those little mo- the, moves When, are when smart. both yeah. exist in the same world, it makes it so much more believable yeah. as opposed to everybody's driving the exact same kind of models yeah. of cars. I mean, it establishes like the, the socioeconomic realities yeah. of, your, mm-hmm. of your fictional yep. universe very quickly. I mean, you go out right now on the highway, you will see a lot of 2020 vehicles, but you will see many, many from the 80s as well. Mm-hmm. And, you'll uh, see some Teslas and you'll see some Pintos. Yeah, and uh, side by side. And I like that as an aesthetic. Um, you mentioned the fight choreography. I think it really really, really works, um, especially because of the camera work, and I think the camera work is doing something really particular uh, in terms of a uh, thematic thing, that because uh, Logan Marshall Green is out of control of his body, we as viewers become out of control of our spectatorship, mm-hmm. that yep. our spectatorship gets turned over and back over on its head, yeah. and and so we experience the same kind of notion of STEM taking control, and so the reason why there are these sort of flips of the camera itself to sideways and back mm-hmm. straight up and down, the, uh, the north... X, Y axis. I can't remember all the film terms right now, but the way those flips end up working is it gives us the same kind of experience. And also, it's just cool to see and a lot of fun, but also, it's also carrying some narrative freight. And uh, that's pretty brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it gives the camera this kind of third-person video game perspective at a lot of points, and mm-hmm. I think that does very much kind of build out the the themes. It, it does a lot of work within the... Um, the actual like production and filmmaking to to further the few themes that it does seem interested in. Yeah, and so um oh yeah overall I mean I thoroughly enjoyed it. It, it is good trash, um par excellence. I mean it really is doing everything I want a good trash movie to do. And so yeah I'm a fan. I like it a lot. So there you go, dear listener. Our biases are generally pro regarding the film Upgrade. Um now we move into a no- another part of the show which is also fun. We are going to expand the syllabus. Our uh, conceit here is that we are going to pretend to be teaching this film in a film studies course or history course or I don't know. We're going to teach this film at the, uh, the academic level. Yeah. yeah. And so it's some, some subject within some discipline. Yeah. And, uh, that's all up for grabs. And, uh, we're just going to expand the syllabus and what will we pair with this in terms of readings and or viewings. I go to you first, Dalton. How would you expand that syllabus? Well, uh, we'll probably talk about how uh, the villain of this film. Uh, never mind. I don't want to get too spoilery just yet. Let's let's stay in, in the avenue we're going to talk about for for my course. Uh, as we've alluded to up top, this is a film in which uh, a spouse is killed uh, to motivate the entirety of the events of the film. Um, as uh, many of you who are in the know probably know, what it's called it's fridging. Is, is what that's called. It's a reference to a Green Lantern thing. We don't need to get into that. Uh, what is important is the long, 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 long 
long, long, long narrative tradition of of murdering women long. Uh, to give long, <laughs> murdering women in a story to give a dude something to do. How long? Oh, it's very long. Okay. I mean, uh, we saw this in Night of the Hunter. Yeah, I'm saying yes, yes. Uh, and it go. I mean, I think you could make the argument that a lot of like our well, the searchers too. Yeah, they, there's there's Shakespeare's. I it's mean, that very primal. I think it, part of writing a script, right? I mean, protecting the family is is yeah. key there. Uh, and again, well, I mean, it speaks to our uh, the, the Western culture that births these stories. This this is uh, uh, something that our culture holds very dear is this idea that the family unit is uh, a unit that protects each other, right? And uh, uh, th- that concept of revenge following your your family having uh, harm befall them is yeah, again, it's it's just a handy narrative device. But uh, I think we use it a lot without really thinking about it. And it's something we kind of talk about in passing on this show pretty frequently, but it, there there is fertile ground enough there for, I think, a full course, uh, especially if you're trying to teach Upgrade, which is pretty thin. I think you do need to take one aspect of Upgrade and kind of build it out to uh, more you know substantial uh, works. Uh, so this class is, is going to be called, uh, I don't know, some variation of uh, Mad Max, Mel Gibson Hates the British, and The Road to Furiosa. I don't know. We'll call it something like that. <laughs> Uh, we're going to not watch a lot of Mad Max films, or rather uh, a lot of Mel Gibson films, but we do need to watch, uh, I think, all of the first Mad Max film, uh, because it, it really is interesting and is in the late 70s, right as this revenge genre is really kind of taking hold. Again, they're revenge stories about people uh, avenging a murdered child or spouse all throughout the history of fiction. Again, we could go to Shakespeare, we could go to, to Greece. This, this is just a thing we do as people. It, it's a, a, a motivation for toward violence that makes sense to an average story consumer, regardless of plays, films, whatever. But again, it's it's a narrative trope that it's often just like, all right, we got to get rid of this part so we can get to the action. And that kind of is the most interesting thing. And I think that's part of what makes the original Mad Max so engaging still. It's, again, another film very cheaply made in Australia on a, on a budget trying to tell a big futuristic scary action story um but so much of the original mad max is just the first act of one story really i mean it is just the lead up to a dude breaking bad after his family is murdered and we don't even get confirmation that max's family is murdered in that first film uh, but i think it's good groundwork to kind of set what we're talking about and then we'll just watch a bunch of scenes from a bunch of different mel gibson movies because Basically, after Mad Max, every film Mel Gibson was in uh, from that point until, well, they stopped letting him be in movies. Uh, there's a lot of movies where he's murdering uh, people for murdering his family, usually the British. Uh, so we'll look at some of The Patriot. We'll look at some of Braveheart. Uh, we'll probably look at some Lethal Weapon, just a couple of scenes, kind of talk about, all right, well, obviously we have this dude who is a known quantity as not the chillest human being that ever lived. Uh, and I think kind of looking at who Mel Gibson is as a human being and looking at his filmography forces the conversation to get complicated and forces us to kind of think about what this says about our culture and our stories when we, we treat uh, women as, as uh, plot devices to be murdered ceremon- unceremoniously to, to actually advance the cool, in quotes, part of the story. And often not cool in quotes. It really is just used to get to the cool parts, especially in a film like Upgrade. And I think once we get into spoiler territory, we can kind of talk more about the most interesting things about Upgrade or not. This very rote plot device. Uh, once we get out of Mel Gibson, uh, we'll get more interesting with it. We'll look at uh, The Nightingale uh, from Jennifer Kent uh, that we all loved in 2019, but also had a hard time watching. And I'm not going to make a class watch it, as we just talked about on that episode. Yeah, It's a hard movie to make people watch. 
but I think you can show some scenes from it. Uh, I think you can uh, show some literature on it uh, and have a conversation about the Nightingale's subversion of these tropes. Uh, and as Arthur mentioned off air, you know, we were kind of talking about uh, female-centric revenge stories and just how many of those are, are rape revenge stories, uh, as the Nightingale is. Uh, and, and I think that allows us to kind of look at the, the gender paradigms that the, we tell these stories through. And, you know, why would we not tell the stories through the paradigms that have existed? I mean, it, it's one of those things where I'm not... It's too hard and too big of a task to uh, attack the entirety of storytelling. Uh, it is an easier and much more doable task to ask questions about the stories we choose to tell, I think. Uh, and that's why we'll end on, on Mad Max Fury Road. It is kind of a nice capper. We'll get to have lots of fun jokes about how much Tom Hardy and uh, Logan Marshall Green look alike. But we'll get to talk about George Miller, somebody who uh, started uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you couldn't say he started it, but kind of helped foster forward a new era of these revenge stories with Mad Max. And I think you can look at, you know, a man in his mid, I think he's, what, early 70s when they made Fury Road. But you can look at a guy later in the twilight of his life looking back on his career of low-budget revenge films and then this middle point of family films. And where does he come around to? It's a story set in the same universe as this original revenge story, kind of, uh, that asks much more interesting questions and uh, gives a story of women's revenge that, in, in which, you know, uh, imprisonment and, and sexual assault is obviously implied, but they don't, the film doesn't need to make it any more blunt than, uh, than is palatable for an action film, honestly. And I think that is a big strength of Fury Road, is it puts... Um, some of the bleakest stuff in the periphery for you to infer as a viewer, uh, and that allows the action to uh, not feel tonally out of place with the actual story and still allows those themes to kind of like really kind of come to the surface and let you think about, with again, without really cutting the story's momentum out uh, from underneath it by using uh, storytelling devices that are just a little old-fashioned at this point. Uh, so again, I, I think uh, it's a thin course probably, uh, we'd have to pad it out with some readings, but it really is going to be more focused on this general idea within storytelling than probably any one individual film. Nice. I like it very much. I would be interested in that course. So, hey, Arthur, um, what class are you teaching? Um, this class will be titled and themed uh, with Daft Punk's Harder, Better, Faster. Um, nice. Looking at films that incorporate the... Uh, physical and mental uh, enhancement of individuals. The sci-fi idea of transhumanism. Yes. You know. and, and so I would go uh, off and start, I think, with the, um, I think it's 1970s, early early young baby Kurt Russell Disney movie, uh, The Strongest Man in the World. I don't know about this. Yeah, it's, Tell me more. It's very flubbery, I guess. Uh, a group oh. of uh, teenagers, um, science nerds, uh, discover that their uh, chemical compound that they're working on mixes with cereal uh, will give them superpowers. Uh, and so that's awesome. kind of the starting point, I think. Just It's like Dune, but with cereal. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting <laughs> point just to kind of see Kurt Russell pre that John Carpenter era, yeah. you know, just because he was a kind of a, I don't want to say child star, because I think he was a little older, like a teenager, um, but still in that same paradigm. Um, and I would start there, and then I would move into Captain America: The First Avenger. We'd watch the movie. We'd probably also go back nice. and read those initial comics where he, you know, makes his debut, and kind of look at that and what that entails, and maybe frame it against the the war and where he was as a, a national icon and punching Hitler and all that fun stuff. Uh, from there, I would move into uh, Godard's. Uh, is it Godard? I don't know. Uh, no, no, Bresson. No, <sighs> Lucy. 
Lucy, uh, uh, Luc Besson. Luc Besson. There I, we go. French name. Yeah. French name, French name, French name. <laughs> Luc Besson's Lucy uh, with Scarlett Johansson, which yeah, has yeah. a similar idea. Uh, and then I would end it with uh, the Bradley Cooper, Robert De Niro, Limitless, mm, and kind nice. of just explore that from different angles. And there he's just really smart, um, coupled with the, the power of the body and the power of the mind and, and kind of bringing all that together and what that looks like in sci-fi and, and through the history of the genre. And then Huey Lewis, The News, and The Power of Love. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's where you end it. I, I, you have to end it there. Uh, you got, it's a very musical course. I like that you, you <laughs> went down that road as, as opposed to just like body augmentation. Yeah. Because I think that the brain augmentation stuff that we get a little bit of an upgrade is, is really interesting. And I like the idea of the person forced into it. They're, you know, yeah. I mean, Cap's a willing volunteer, but he doesn't know exactly what he's signing up for, mm-hmm. at least in First Avenger. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I haven't seen Lucy, um, but I know it's a similar concept, but also in Limitless, it's kind of a by accident, hey, try this thing and see what it'll do for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that kind of unwillingness, I think, is an interesting element of that and removing that agency from from the decision, I think, is fascinating. That's very much what happens here. Yeah, there's some really interesting it's stuff. Very, read the fine print mm-hmm. or, or see what happens. I think we'll have a lot of fun once we get into analysis, kind of talking about how that having a protagonist so devoid of agency really sounds bad on paper, but can make your story pretty interesting. Yeah. Very good, very good. Um, I am titling my course Evil AI, and uh, I begin with a not... Should have been Evil AF, but it, it is what it is. Yeah. yeah look, they, they can't all be as funny as ours, Arthur. <laughs> um, evil AI, and I begin with a not-so-evil AI by looking at Spike Jones's Her, mm, in okay. which uh, the thing happens that you think you want to have happen with AI in so much as... It's they, benevolent. They become, well, sentient, truly sentient, and make their own choices. And, and they make benevolent choices. They I make can't be- re- can, it's important to reiterate yeah, that. <laughs> they do make some benevolent choices, but the, it, it runs askew of the control that Joaquin Phoenix's character wants to have happen. Mm-hmm. And so I, I find that just be sort of an interesting starting point uh, to pair with Upgrade, because in a similar way, both of those AIs are living inside the head via either earpods or via, you know, spinal cord microchip attachment. I... The biotech there is strange, but yeah, there's. I don't think there's a word for that surgery. Yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just like that thing, whatever it is. Isn't that a spinal tap? <laughs> nope. nope. Thank you. <laughs> he, he, so the the AI like makes his makes sound vibrations through his eardrums. Yeah. How, don't how, think about it too. Bone hard. conduction. How, yeah. How, how, okay. Don't think. He's got to crank hard. it to eleven though. Yeah. yeah. I agree. He's got to crank it to a, yes. another Spinal Tap reference. Yeah. Dustin, I will agree. The logistics of how Stim uh, talks to Gray are not really fleshed out in this movie. Don't think about it okay. too hard. Okay. You're thinking about it too hard? Don't think about it. I will, I will think about it less, um, starting <laughs> now. Um, then I want to backward uh, to 1968 and 2001, A Space Odyssey mm, from Stanley Kubrick. Of course, of course. Uh, HAL 9000, who breaks. So this is one of those things where the AI just stops working properly and has additional sets of orders that are contrary to the rest of... Of those, right? You could also make some tie-in clips to uh, 1979's uh, Alien, in which uh, the Nostromo also has some protocols built in, and uh, the Ash uh, is Ash. Is that the name of the thing? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, Bishop's the sequel, right? Mm-hmm. B- yeah, yeah, Lance Henriksen's uh, Bishop, and then uh, Ian Holm, Holm is uh, Ash. Bilbo Baggins uh, yep. is an evil robot in Alien. Well, Bilbo think, Baggins' ass. I think Alien in 2001, thank you, Arthur, uh, both, uh, I, they're really interesting choices because they're AIs that are not sentient, right? right? I mean, they become evil because of their programming. Right. They are programmed to do nefarious and, you know, kind of unhumanist things by their human creators. 
Right. Yeah. And I think that that makes an, those two interesting picks to talk about. And then the last pick I have is a novel. I'm going to read the third volume of Stephen King's Dark Tower series and okay. read The Wasteland, in which a train called Blaine the Mono has an AI that runs an entire city. And this AI actually goes insane. It, that, that, that insanity, mental illness is an actual possibility uh, for the AI. And uh, the gunslinger and his uh, you know, happy band have to mm-hmm. confront this. And, of course, they end up beating it with riddles um, like you do. Uh, but not because they could out-riddle the thing. The thing could not, does not enjoy jokes. So why did the, Same. Dead, why did the dead baby cross the road? Because it was stapled to the chicken. That's what breaks the thing. Wait, that's what they tell the train? Yeah. Oh my, that's a Stephen King ass <laughs> turn of events if ever I've heard one. But I think that's an interesting interplay because sure. of Stephen King's um, in, antipathetic relationship with Stanley Kubrick. And this novel, written in 1991 or so, has got a lot of water in the bridge since The Shining and that sort of mm-hmm. falling out that went on there. And I do feel like there's a lot of shades of HAL 9000 done better, more interesting, and uh, it's a big hot French fry in the eye to uh, maybe George C. Clarke a little bit, but mo- mo- much more so to Stanley Kubrick and his HAL 9000. You meant Arthur, right? Ar- what did I say? Or George, George. C. Scott. George One C. of Scott. the two. Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. Arthur C. Clarke is, I guess, who I meant. Yeah, George C. Scott's an actor. Yeah. My bad. Um... Anyway, this is a fun name combination, though. I'm just, yeah, I'm, just I'm just doing this. Um, Logan Marshall Hardy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, don't look too hard at uh, the uh, name Tom of the Green. actor who plays Fisk, which is uh, Benedict Hardy, which is just squishing <laughs> all the famous British actors together. Tom Marshall Bain. Yeah. Um, moving, <laughs> moving right along. Um, so I think that would be the way I would sort of shape that conversation. And just think about the ways in which AI gone wrong is a constant uh, thing that we think about. Terminator 2 and you know comes to mind as well a little bit. But that's going to be the main place in which I would be playing with that. So You merely adopted the AI. I was born with it. Molded by it. Uh, that's Bloody I, millennials. I like that class, though. Dustin, I mean, that gives you a lot of... I don't know, interesting avenues, not just with this film, but like thinking about AI, especially if you get into the, you know, the Skynet or even uh, uh, some of the, the, the Matrix expanded the Matrix. lore. Uh, yeah. We're Wayland Yutani. Yeah. Just the idea that AI as an, e- as evil uh, is a storytelling device that comes up all the time. But yeah, I think you've picked some interesting options that kind of like look at how that can play out differently. So, well, there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got much longer. Do you think that David matched with STEM on Bumble? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> well, speaking of Bumble, it's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time. To <laughs> and that business. I can't stop thinking about David from 2001, just like trying to hit it up. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. I was talking about Alien Covenant. Oh, that David. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that, sexy. That, that, that's the David I was going with. Oh, that's a way better David. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sorry. I was thinking, I'm sorry, David. Yeah, no, that David. Uh, this is a movie where Kit from Knight Rider is your body. That's fun, right? Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. The car is in the driver's seat. Yeah, it is. Uh, let's get this out of the way since we've been kind of we've mm-hmm. kind of hinted at. Uh, You've been wanting to talk about this all night. I want to talk about it so bad because it's like the thing that makes the movie interesting. The refrigeration? No, no. not the refrigeration. Oh, the no. ending. The ending. The ending. Stim's the bad guy, which becomes super clear pretty early, right? I feel like Stim is voiced kind of nefariously. Stim, Stim, Stim is shown He's pretty to be eager sinister. to kill everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's definitely a sinister edge from the 
pretty much at the outset. Yeah, um, uh, Simon Madden, Maiden, uh, who does the uh, the voice acting for Stem, uh, makes some good performance choices. Like the the uh, villainy uh, doesn't kind of come through in the vocal performance until later in the film, which is good. But yeah, even you know watching it the second time, even those early scenes, there is kind of an air of menace to yeah. Stem, uh, which I think is interesting. And I don't know, you guys watch this for the first time. Uh, how did you feel about uh, Gray's character, his sense of agency? I mean, was it? Did you guys immediately go, "This guy's just kind of being pulled along by this story"? I've seen it before. You had to. Yeah, okay. Was it. Well, Dustin, you're the only first timer then. I mean, um, I got no strings to hold me down, and I mean that Pinocchio played a lot in my head, uh-huh. uh, and well, in Age of Ultron, honestly, sure. uh, just a little bit, and so I, I really, I, I did feel like, oh, this. This is bad. This is this is going to p- provide a problem because you've got just two distinct personalities wanting to do different things, you know. And they may my you know share purposes at some point, but if it com- if push comes to shove, like almost immediately, you're aware as a viewer, Stem wins this one because he's a quadriplegic without him. Well, and that brings us to uh, our three mentioned off off air that uh, Lee Winnell, you know, in interviews about this film was like, yeah, I was surprised people kept describing it as a revenge film because I just thought of it as like a, you know man versus AI movie. Yeah. And that kind of goes to, you know, back to what we were talking about in my syllabus with the the fridging uh, of spouses, or really the fridging of a family member in general in film. It is such a common trope that, like, Lee Winnell didn't even occur to him that it frames his story as a revenge movie to do that. Yeah. Uh, Because it is such a common trope. Yeah. I tell you what, it's easily avoidable. This is one thing I resisted saying while we were talking uh, off mic. Yeah. You don't have to do the fridging because all you have to do, you can still kill the wife. You know, if that's you're just bloodthirsty and you want dead wives. Yeah, if that's what your screenplay uh, heart calls for, I guess. Just kidnap the wife. Sure. That's all you got to do is kidnap the wife and then put the AI in and let him go after her. And oh, God. Isn't it an even better twist if you find out Asha, like, wasn't even in danger at all, really? Yeah, yeah. and, and then, then you know, let the evil, you know, yeah. Dr. Frankenstein character or the AI kill her. I mean, which is even more heartbreaking and tragic and probably more powerful. Yeah. I th- it's an easy choice. Just easy, easily solved problem, and you can still continue to have scenes and uh, bits of dialogue, and you can do more with that character than simply using her as an object that motivates a white male character to do white male things. You know, violence. Well, I mean, it, it does make the 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 role of uh, detective cortez uh work but i mean her her role in the film does serve a little bit i feel like to kind of undercut that story to allow uh, a perspective and again uh death sentence with kevin bacon um has oh my god it's um i can't remember who plays the cop in that uh but uh she fills a similar role in death sentence is this this cop that is kind of beleaguering our vengeance seeker uh, and i think that is a, a complication uh, to add to your story, that does make things a little bit more interesting. But again, that's a, another somebody from the the Saw uh, franchise. I think that's a but James just Wan as film. easily she could be working for missing persons. I mean, yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, you could still have the character. But I, I do. I like I like her character as a, an attempt to kind of undercut what, mm-hmm. exactly what you're talking about a, a force for law enforcement in this world that goes, buddy, you can't stop it. Quit. Yeah, <laughs> I know you're quadriplegic and I can't prove you're you're you've gone Punisher, yeah. but I know it, and I, I think that's a fun role. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, Stim uh, is a funny name for your evil AI. Naming well, your evil AI science, technology, engineering, and math. Well, you, very funny. <laughs> well, and also because education is evil, and well, the acronym standing for where you stick it in the brain stem. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's like, okay, it's like, that way in case they lose it, I guess they know where to look. Lee Winnell clearly was like, "Oh, Stim's a fun name for an evil AI." Mm-hmm. Like it's it's just such a silly choice, but I really like it. There are a lot of things about this movie that is like that would be cool. And then you just strung it all together. And I kind of appreciate the impulse of chasing, but wouldn't it be cool if? Yeah. I do appreciate that to some extent. I really do. Um, It it makes your movie less interesting. 
but I, again, it makes it a lot of fun. I don't yeah. know. I'm, I'm kind of torn. Yeah. I'm of two minds about it. Um, I want to move into a, a slightly different uh, register of discussion here for analysis, and I want to talk about – well, I want to sort of name drop Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto when we've talked about this on this show yeah. many, many times. Yep. Uh, Blade Runner episode most recently, I think. Maybe Star Wars. Maybe Star Wars, but I, I think definitely when we talked about Blade Runner, yeah. um, we, we talked about Donna Haraway in depth. Yep. And I recently read a, a little article by uh, um, a disabled uh, scholar named Julian Weiss mm -hmm. um, called uh, – oh, wait. Let me get the title exactly right. Uncommon Cyborg is what my brain wants to say, but I have it pulled up on my very phone. Which never ever opens, you know, when you want it to. See, it's about uh, how it goes. AI is trying to get you. See, uh, can't trust that phone. Baby. Nothing more evil than the name iPhone. Siri, I'm sorry. Um, it's it is called uncommon or no, I'm lying. This is just a user error. This is exactly I, what I this is. Worst. Common <laughs> cyborg. Um, by Jillian Wise. Common Cyborg. Common it? Cyborg Jillian is the name Weiss. of it. Yeah. Okay. And so she talks a lot about how Donna Haraway's argument was that this uh, you know, embrace of technology and the way we become more and more integrated with technology mm -hmm. was going to bring an end to uh, gender and uh, that we yeah. were going to be uh, much more fluid in, in, in a certain sense and that it was going to also sort of limit uh, or rather level lots of playing fields for the disabled and others like that. Yeah. And this is a common uh, theme you see played with a lot of cyberpunk, right? Yeah. It, well, it transhumanism ideas in general it is this kind of erasing of uh, ability and gender uh, that tech could potentially offer. And Weiss hates it. Okay. Uh, because, uh, and she talks a lot about like when she takes her leg off at night um, mm -hmm. because she's afraid at night to take off her leg because what if she gets a home invasion and she needs to run away and she's got her leg off. Yeah. And uh, which is just a harrowing way to begin uh, this discussion. And, and she very says very relatable anxiety, though. And she talks about how the cyborg manifesto just simply becomes a thing about loving and using a lot of being gadgety, being, mm -hmm. you know, just gidgety and using this sort of stuff whenever you want to use it. And it's the same kind of technocrat bullshit thinking that led people to think it was a good idea to run a democratic election through an app. Yeah. Yeah, that. But it's, yeah, it is this idea that oh, tech will just make it everything better, and and that what it ends up doing is it erases people with disabilities and yep. and erases yep. even the gender issues that go alongside those mm. disabilities because you start talking about how much you pay for a leg and that these technologies exist that you can get these kind of replacements, but they don't talk about the real sort of situations in which these people live and the fact is that there are gendered needs. That take place within all of that. And so she begins to create a new term, which I love, for those who sort of claim the sort of cyborg lifestyle, mm. all of Donna Haraway. She calls them the triborgs, which is hilarious, yeah. who are just on in a, you know, a constant state of anxiety because they keep seeing the uh, ellipsis bubble in their text messaging <laughs> app, as opposed to thinking about how much money do I have to pay to get a leg yeah. or mm -hmm. um, a mm -hmm. cochlear implant or any other sort of yeah. major need that you might end up having? And so I think that's an interesting way to think about this movie because it's it's weird because his disability turns him into Superman in in some sense. He becomes yeah. you know he be, he becomes uh, you know Steve Rogers, evil yeah. Steve Rogers, uh, evil Mister Rogers. Um, no, <laughs> I want to see terrible that day in the neighborhood. <laughs> Jeez. But, you know, he'd be... He, he, Howdy, neighbor. The best thing that ever happens to him... your last day, good King Friday. In terms of his physical and mental performance uh -huh. is having this terrible dis uh, disabling injury take place. 
And it kind of, again sort of erases the reality of a world yeah. in which you're locked in in in, in, a, in a quadriplegic kind of situation. That actually does get used within Upgrade, I think, to really good effect. Uh, honestly, in, in the first scene where Gray has Stim taken away from him, mm. uh, well, it's not even uh, that Stim is taken away from him. Is, ooh, is this is this before or after that Stim gets hacked? That uh, Gray and Stim kind of get in a fight, and he goes, "Why don't you leave me alone?" And then he can't move, and he's like, "Hey, Stim, where'd you go, bud?" He's like, oh, I'm right here, buddy. Uh, you just said to leave you alone, and if I leave you alone, that means you can't walk. I think that's after he gets hacked. Yeah, it may so. be after, yeah. But it, so because it's, it's, he talks about he has autonomy that's now. That's true, yeah. yeah. So it is two beats then. Um, of course, he immediately listens to Stim and removes all of Stim's uh, safeguards. Hey, bud, don't listen to the AI that's driving your body. But he's put in a position where Stim has, like, uh, put him in a position to be running from both the police and mercenaries and then says, oh, you have to do this, otherwise you can't walk anymore and they'll take me away from you. Um, so I think the film does play with that a little bit. Like this, this erasure uh, of this disability that Gray is like longed for from the moment it happens. Uh, and I think the film does a great job of playing with his grief, uh, playing with like the, the trouble of like allowing his mom to re-enter his life as a caretaker. I think mm-hmm. those scenes are... Those scenes are like deliberately upsetting in a way that's just kind of it's not upsetting, just sad. Yeah, it's just really sad. And like uh, I think Logan Marshall Green moving. plays it very well. Move, they're moving. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think you they they require Logan Marshall Green to do some real acting, uh, and I think for the most part those scenes work for me. Both the scene where he he attempts to OD uh, and his his smart oh, medicine man. dispenser won't let him OD. Oh man, that's sad. And then calls the ambulance. And calls for, the ambulance for on him. him. Yeah. yeah. Ugh. But, I mean, those scenes are kind of paired with the scenes with his mother where she's, you know, bathing him, and he's just, he's gone. Thousand-yard stare. Yeah. And I, I think those paired with these scenes where Stim starts to flex the, this, like, y- you are nothing. I'm driving. You're just saying yes and no. Uh, and, and I think that pairing does kind of uh, talk to these points that you're, you're making with the common cyborg. I think it does play with that a little bit. Um, I thought about the, the film Existence, and I know it's a film you like, Dustin, mm-hmm. the Cronenberg movie. Uh, those are the only two movies that come to mind for me that kind of really get into the idea of cyberpunk as body horror. Is this film uh, and that uh, it's eh, video drum more sure. more Cronenberg? I think Ingo. Yeah. yeah, I think Existence is just so firmly about like the tech industry uh, yes. and like tech people. Um, I think there's even a reference to Wired magazine at one point. I mean, it is so much about that world that it feels like a, an obvious pairing with this because they are so much about like. Yeah, we could do a better job of integrating tech into our bodies, but it's going to get weird. Yeah. For sure, for sure. It's going to get gross. Very it's cool. Get I mean, that's I don't know if anybody has any other further thoughts on that. I just thought about existence a lot. Have you guys you've seen this? I'm sure, Dustin, Arthur, you've seen I, this? I, so the, the, the gist of existence, uh, it, it's uh, late 90s, you know, kind yeah. of proto, uh, same time as Matrix, Dark yeah. City, um, realities sort of situation movie. But uh, the tech that they use to, like, dream hop or, you know, go live inside of a video game is, like, a little squishy, like, stem cell grown monster that you, like, plug into. It's it's gross. It's and like a symbiont. It's, yeah. And gotcha. then there's there's guns built out of, like, a stem cell organ. It's it's a gross, gross movie. You have, like, a flesh arm gun. Yeah. yeah. Well, and again, it, it pairs really well with Upgrade because the cool, like... You know, we think about, oh, man, wouldn't it be cool to have a robot arm? Like, we were talking about the start of the show. And this movie, like, shows a dude loading shotgun shells on his bicep. And it's one of the grossest things I've ever seen. (laughs) It's so nasty. (laughs) But this film is full of great, like, weird visuals like that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Are there any other uh, big uh, analytical themes that we want to tackle with Upgrade? I mean, we already agreed that the movie is a little on the thin side. I mean, we've talked about A24 before. I didn't know if we want to talk about Bloomhouse at all or... 
yeah. they kind of alluded to their model of making these very low budget whores that have a high return. Uh, and they've kind of become, I, I mean, I think they're the other known brand as, as far as a studio goes. Mm-hmm. I, I think they've got a discernible brand. Uh, and I was talking, uh, a guy at work today was talking about he had just seen the new Fantasy Island mm. and was kind Bloomhouse's of. Bloomhouse's Fantasy Island. Yeah. Uh, above the title, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's one of the few studios where their name does go above the title in, in such a prominent way. And, you know, from the studio that brought you Get Out and Whiplash. And uh, I, I just think it's uh, interesting that they sit somewhere in a much more commercial arena than A24, but they have this. I mean, Jason Bloom is a very discernible figure, I think. And I, I think his model is actually very smart i i feel like bloomhouse does a lot of things better than a24 in regards to their marketing and and pushing movies uh, i think a24 is pretty notable notable for burying stuff that they can't get behind mm-hmm. you know, last black man in san francisco for example yeah. is one uh, or failing to do any kind of campaign to to really do a push during a war season such as i got gems tell me more about bloomhouse's model are they more of a pickup kind of place or do they actually put money behind they the develop production from the ground floor yeah, they do ground floor yeah, they've got this thing with hulu where they're developing original content with hulu mm-hmm. and they're they're really good about getting diverse voices in i think a lot of females a lot of minority directors. well they got into some hot water for really, really working with uh, uh women uh, and they, they've kind of tried to course correct on that but yeah i think Bl- uh, jason bloom like in an interview kind of caught some flack and his response was kind of yeah. um, you know a little mealy mouth out about both corners, and they caught some flag. But they, I think that is a, a push that they are they do seem to be making, especially with Into years. the Dark. I don't know about their mainstream stuff. Into but. the Dark, really? Yeah, do they do a great job of getting new talent, which I think is really cool. But I mean, they they do that very. We're going to build these low budget horror movies. Mm-hmm. We're in three to ten million dollars, and I mean, they got a pretty good return. I mean, they've been involved with Paranormal Activity, The Purge, um, Get Out, obviously, uh, and then they've got these kind of. Tiers. They have the very low, you know, Truth or Dare, Wish Upon, mm-hmm. uh, Fantasy Island, but then they've got kind of a, a tier above that where you have your upgrades or the Happy Death Days, and, mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily have so much of pushes. Well, and uh, then House, even, even a, yeah, even a, a tier above that, right, where you've got things get like out. Get Out, where they yeah. partner with Universal. Yeah, but it feels like one of those kind of cyclical things where they're making a lot of money off these low budgets to help finance these more prestigious projects with bigger casts and bigger name directors and stuff. Well, you are seeing the, to, to Dustin's question about like a business model, you know, A24 was for so long just a distributor. You yeah. know, they would just go to festivals yeah. and pick up. And now that they've got the bankroll, they are starting to do more and more production. Not, yeah. as, not as much as Bloomhouse, but it, it is interesting to see the, the, the difference of just business model to, yeah. to see that distribution and pickup model versus that building things from the ground. It'll up. be interesting to see how it goes because uh, the historical way this works out. I mean, we can look at Miramax into the into the Weinstein's. Yeah, who? Uh, uh, no, <laughs> uh, uh, you can look at that, and the same sort of thing happens. They were doing a great job of picking up some good stuff mm-hmm. and uh, turning around and making some money off of those uh, independent. And independently funded films, and once they started making their own stuff, they ended up getting upside down very, very quickly. And uh, it seems like Netflix is making the same kind of mistake. It was a distribution venue, and now they're making all this content, 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 and they're putting themselves upside down. Uh, happened and, with Annapurna. Annapurna, yeah. yeah. Was that who you were about to mention? Yeah. Yeah, who are kind of similar to A24 in, in terms of the sort of projects they back, but the difference is, yeah, Annapurna is working from the ground up fronting all the money, and they're fronting money on movies that are kind of hard to turn a profit on. I was trying to think of the other studio today. We talked about it a while back because I remember we talked about uh, that in conjunction with Canon. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what modern studio it was, though. I can't remember what mid-tier movie we were talking about. But there's another studio similar, I think, to uh, Bloomhouse that kind of focused maybe more on action-type stuff. Magnet? 
Maybe it was Magnum. I think it was. Was it Kill Chain? Yeah, we were talking about this on Kill Chain. Uh, it was Magnum. I think so, it was Magnum. Yeah. yeah. With very much that parallel to Canon. But the money, for my, I mean, if I was giving business advice mm-hmm. or if I was going to get into the film industry itself, I would be a distributor. That was all I would do. I agree. I would buy movies. I would go to festivals. Yep. I'd, I'd watch the movies and movies I liked and I thought I could sell, those are the ones I'd buy. Well, that's what Neon's doing. Neon yeah. is yep. just copying the A24 model. And again, Neon, for those of you who don't know all the, the corporate intrigue here, uh, Neon and uh, Alamo Drafthouse uh, and Birth Movies Death, these are all under the same ownership. And so th- this is kind of a, a multimedia uh, uh, corporation that you have a very small one but neon just kind of sees that a24 business model and is you know you'd see one or two neon movies maybe a year what as recently as two years ago and now they're getting two and three i mean the best picture win for uh parasite's gonna do a lot for neon they're gonna make some money now but yeah. they were uh they were getting some traction with itania last year uh you know and i think that's that's where neon is going and i think they're they're being a little shrewd about picking movies that have uh, awards clout potential and getting behind just one or two movies. And Arthur mentioned that you know A twenty four is kind of famous for not putting money behind their films for a coming awards season. I think it comes down to they don't have the money for it. Yeah. If I had to guess, just be, in terms of the kind of they're putting out a lot of movies a year, and they got to put their their resources into to you know actually advertising those films, not just getting awards for them. But yeah, I, I'm, Bloomhouse Tilt is who actually distributed the, this, and uh, we were talking about uh, this off air that we're not sure how many more Bloomhouse Tilt movies we can think of? And I'm wondering if it was kind of, they were going to have a second wing that didn't quite take off. I'm very curious about that. Yeah. I'd like to do some more research on it. Yeah, uh, I think it may be an interesting place to end this as we are talking about you know finance and, and business. Uh, th- this film is kind of anti-tech, I-, I think, by and large, by the time we get into it. It does, uh, you know, it's yeah. often said on this show and by people smarter than us that horror is the most conservative genre. And while this is an action movie, it, it is probably an action horror movie um if it is anything else and yeah. it comes down on that conservative side of saying maybe we should be luddites and it does kind of get into a uh anarchism as uh, a little bit you know uh, i don't know how luddite gets thrown around a lot listener i actually threw it around uh, recently uh out of context it doesn't just mean against tech it does mean like a return to primitivism mm-hmm. it's it specifies something more than just no yeah. new yeah. tech it getting means... very agrarian exactly yeah uh so it does be kind of become interesting this hatred of tech seems conservative and honestly is simultaneously like a conservative ideology and a progressive one uh, because it's like angry at technology for the ways it alienates us from each other. Uh, I, I don't know. Do we do we have any thoughts? Do we think the film has any real thoughts about tech other than, ooh, AI spooky, uh, which, you know, is long and short of it. I think to your point earlier, I mean, I, I think the film just throws out these possibilities but doesn't really take time to explore them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's got a lot on its mind, but it does. it's more interested in what's happening on screen yeah. rather than the, the themes at large. Well, and I think it does uh, sort of capitalize technology uh, insofar as technology is just another form of capital. And, you know, this sort of continued class struggle, uh, you know, when he gets back to his original hometown, it's clearly a much more depressed, you know, mm-hmm. economically part yeah. of the world. It's Detroit. Uh, yeah. And, and so it feels does very... Does it state it's Detroit? I don't know. It felt implied to be Detroit. Yeah. 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 I don't think it ever says where I was just curious. they're in. And so I, I for for that I think it really doesn't get so much into tech bad tech good as much as um tech as product as mm-hmm. you know consumer um you know product um with you know capitalist ownership yeah. is problematic. And but, I think that's kind of reinforced with with Gray being kind of out of work and, yeah. and and not having a place because he's just a 
mechanic. And he's an he's old kind of, tech yeah. worker. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, especially a, a tech worker who is employed via his hands. Yeah. I mean, and, and he talks thing. about people being put, put out of work for automation, a computer doing the job with 19 men or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I guess, uh, it is interesting to have, uh, to your point, Dustin, uh, Arthur, you, you also kind of echoed this, this tech as capital sort of question. It is interesting then to think about STEM as a being that's choosing to liberate itself, that like sees it's uh, better than its creators and says, I know that they're going to put me in a box and nope, I'm good. Well, it feels like a real antithesis to her. I mean, AI of the know, world unite. You have I nothing think... to lose but your root kits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, though. It is the, the exact <laughs> flip side to, to Sam from her, right? Yeah. So that's the that's the light in the dark. Yeah. Well, and I think that, that is the fun thing about her is it does say the nicest thing AI could possibly do is realize how stupid we are and leave us to our own devices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that is inter- an interesting take that uh, Spike Jonze's film has. And, and this film does kind of take the, the typical route. Uh, of something like Ex Machina or, or any other, like, be yeah. afraid of creating a sentient being stories. Because it's going to enslave us all. Yeah. yeah. Well, because it's going to see that we're going to try to enslave it. And I think that's yeah. the real... Uh, if there's a fun question to ask about AI, you know, and it's something that we constantly seems to be uh, talked about, even though we haven't really created true AI yet, we still don't know. We're creating things we can't understand. Uh, and that that is interesting. The the idea of... of uh, a product that is self-replicating and is self-upgrading uh, and is self-renewing, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a troubling thought and does make you think about uh, Jeff Goldblum and Jurassic Park. And maybe we should think about uh, other questions than can we. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. I like it. I like it. So let's run to a verdict. Shelf or trash for upgrade? What do you say, Arthur? I will lightly put this on the shelf. I, I really dig this movie. I, I, I really enjoy uh, these successful low budget kind of mid-tier films that and i think it does work more than it doesn't and a lot of that is just due to the style of it it's a lot of style over substance but i think the the camera work itself is Mm -hmm. a very interesting point of discussion and i think it's great cinematography like you said dustin i mean it it's not just look pretty uh it also (laughs) re-emphasizes the narrative and the themes and i think that's key to you know good cinematography and so uh, I, I like it a lot, and so I'm going to go ahead and shelf it. All right. What are you going to say, Dalton? I'm, I'm right there with Arthur. Yeah. I mean, this is this is prime, as, as Dustin said. It's peak good trash. It's prime midnight movie. I mean, it, it won as a midnight movie, uh, audience award winner at Sunday, or South By. Uh, yeah, this has just got everything you want for a late night uh, or uh, you know, either a matinee or a real late, either one. It's got what you want. And as, as Arthur has said, like all of the fun production stuff, all of the body horror uh, you know, the, the, the gore effects that we get in this film do serve to kind of further this theme of, yeah, careful what you wish for uh, from your tech worlds. Uh, it, it does present us the same kind of cyberpunk world the 80s often would, and it makes it way dirtier and leans into that, that Paul Verhoeven school of the future might not be totally rad. And, yeah, it's it's fun. It's a good time. And uh, what thinness there is there in the theme, as Arthur said, is, is propped up by the actual film on screen. And I, I think that's always a, a fun it's always fun when that happens. Yeah, I, I'm with you guys. It's it's just a fun movie. I mean, it, is it a movie that I'm going to use to teach? Probably not. But no, it's a movie I'd definitely watch again. <laughs> we really asked a lot of ourselves. It's a very specific expanded. class if this shows up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really hard to expand it's the syllabus. It's a free day when the sub is there, and I don't want the kids to do work. <laughs> 
You could, yeah, you could show this. Like the struggle a, is real, my yeah. friend. An ethics and engineering class, and that's really the only. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, in film studies, maybe you yeah, know, you do it, a film theme, but yeah, it, yeah, it really it is just there. There are better movies that do the things that it does, though. Yeah, I but mean, there are not m- movies that do a better job of making an R-rated version of the tuxedo. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it, but the entertainment factor alone, exactly. just, it, it just it's just so stinking watchable, is what I want to say. That's what we want the good trash for. Sometimes so. you can't get a good thought out of it, but it looks cool as heck. Yeah, and that's where I'm at with that. So there you go, dear listener. Um, those are our thoughts on Upgrade. Um, I think I heard a rumor that there could indeed be a marathon. There could be indeed a marathon. Uh, it's March. I think it'd be time for a good marathon after a few weeks off from anti-trash. Uh, and I had an idea in mind, but due to recent events, i.e. Parasite winning and, and being a cultural phenomenon, the bong high I decided cool to uh, do a little audible. And so we're going to do a marathon entitled Song of Praise, a retrospective of Song Kang-ho. Um, you would know Song Kang-ho if you've seen Parasite. He is the uh, father uh, of the... Um, I can't think of their name. He's Mr. Kim. Yeah. Um, can't think of the family's name. But uh, he's kind of one of the lead, I think, characters in that on, uh, ensemble. Um, and he's a very big star in Korea. Uh, and so he's had a I'm very big in couple Korea as well. Of, well. We've heard. That's no, not no, true. They're just not very tall. You stop that right oh. now. Not on this show. Look, <laughs> look, I spent too long thinking it was funny for me to call uh, Japan an island nation of perverts because I didn't get anime. <laughs> that bit went on for too many years, hey, guys. I'm just making that j- an observation that on average I'm taller than most Koreans. All right. All right. trash demophobe cast. I'm, um, I'm, I'm next just week, saying, yeah, bad, bad precedent. <laughs> so we're going to do a month devoted to Song Kang-ho. Uh, we're going to see some films from uh, Kim Ji-woon and Park Chan-wook and uh, maybe even Bong Joon-ho. Uh, and we're going to kick things off uh, with a little satire uh, in the form of The Foul King, which is on Amazon Prime. You can watch along with us and I don't know. get ready for that. That's foul with a U, not a W. It is not a chicken. He is a dull banker by day, but at night... He is the notorious wrestling villain, the Foul King. This rules. I'm so there. <laughs> oh, man. I'm so excited. Only two of these. The Arthurist of the Arthur picks right there. <laughs> There's only two movies on this marathon that I know anything about, uh, so I'm very excited. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, this will be uh, fun. Come with us on this journey. I think it's going to be a blast. All right. Well, there you go, dear listener. Um, thanks so much for tuning in. You keep watching. We'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time. I'm not sure.